So as you find your seat, um, make sure you have your Bible handy today. We will be reading a lot of text as we are going through the book of Leviticus. Let us start with a word of prayer and we will continue. Father God, we're grateful for the opportunity to learn about your holiness, your righteousness, your majesty, your beauty. Thank you for this privilege to be instructed how we ought to worship you. And I'm grateful for the grace of God that opened our eyes and the sufficiency of Christ and his forgiveness for our sins. I pray that you bless our study, give us your grace, help us to learn how we ought to approach you, how we ought to come before you, and, and um, how are we to be a witness for Christ where we live. Amen. As we start um, the next class from, from Leviticus, I really want to start with uh, a book of Luke. You may recall in chapter 5 of Luke, uh, there were a group of fishermen who were fishing on the lake, and they had a very troubled uh, evening. Now, fishermen uh, that described in Luke 5, they were not fishermen like we are today. We fish for fun, and if we, if we truly want to have a good catch, we go to Costco. Uh, th those fishermen, they were fishing because their life depended on it. And if you don't catch anything, you don't eat anything. Now, obviously, uh, for a group of young fellows to spend a night on the lake or in the Sea of Galilee not to catch anything, it was rather disappointing to state mildly. Um, and here comes a, a young teacher and tells them to cast their net. Now, uh, I do not know how many of you uh, do uh, habitual fishing, but I have uh, known a gentleman who purchased a book who followed the, the direction, or I guess the, the schedule for the tides, uh, when to fish, when to cast, when fish is supposedly hungry, uh, whenever I go fishing, fish is never hungry. Uh, <laughs> but, but he had figured out uh, all the manual. So this young teacher tells them, the professional fishermen, to cast a net. And I guess out of the honor and respect to this great teacher, Peter have done that. And to his own surprise, they've caught so much fish that his boat and his fellower's boat were so full that they were, they were about to be sinking. And only at that point, Peter recognized and came into presence of Jesus and says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. At that point, that fisherman recognized that he stands in the presence of the one who is holy. A natural response to God's holiness for us as a human beings is to flee, is to walk away, to hide. This natural response is part of really uh, something that we have learned from our grand-grandparents, Adam and Eve. Whenever they violated God's holiness, this is the first thing they did. They hid themselves. As we study in the book of Leviticus, this is the main theme and main truth that the author of Leviticus instructs us. God is holy. And so the book of Leviticus is really the manual for worship as we come and as we encounter the holiness of God. Over the, over the course of a few weeks, 
We've been highlighting and thinking about this truth in light of all the other sacrifices that the Israelites were prescribed to bring as they come into the presence of God. So the purpose of this book, and really the key word, if you are to think about the book of Leviticus, is holiness. And this book is written to instruct the nation of Israel. And you remember this nation of Israel received uh, Leviticus when they were in between. They, were, they left Egypt, they were just established as a nation, but they have not come to their own homeland. Promised land that was given to them by God. So they, God is training them while they're in the wilderness how they are to live as a holy nation set apart and to be witness to other nations. So he gives them uh, the instructions as the covenant people, chosen people, and how they should live in response to God's holiness. It is God who chose to live in their midst. So as we consider holiness, uh, last week, um, just a few thoughts that we share the holiness is the most excellent, is the moral excellence of God, or it is really a summation of all his attributes of who he is. Uh, there are a few words that uh, we come uh, across when we read the scriptures. I know none of us read in Hebrew, maybe some of you do, but these are the words that we do here uh, in the English translation. And so I just want to kind of highlight them and um, and I noticed even this morning, if you were in the first hour, our, either our songs or the preaching that we've heard, they all bring these concepts. So no, we did not share the notes with, among the, the groups, but the, it just happened to be we use the same Bible. And whatever, whether, whether you are in the Old Testament or New Testament, it points to the character and nature of God. So one of the words is really to be consecrated or to be holy. Uh, and then uh, it, basically they come from the same root. Um, it's either verb or adjective or noun. So uh, second here on the slide you will see this is a noun that means apartness or holiness. That's what we use. And it's, it's essential nature of, of that which belongs in the sphere of sacred, distinct from common and profane. When we will cover in Leviticus chapters uh, 11 through 15, this concept will become really clear for us. We will have to deal with various subjects like whether food, interpersonal relationships, sickness, what makes somebody profane, common versus sacred or holy. Uh, another uh, word for holy or pure, someone or something that is intrinsically sacred. So if you think about uh, the golden ring, if I am to split apart, it's intrinsically, it's gold. So if you are thinking about the person of God, he's not only on the outside holy, it, it is his holiness penetrates and fills him all in the entirety, intrinsically. And this is uh, really the root of the word to cut or to separate. So the basic meaning of the word kadosh, therefore, is that God's people are set to be set apart for God's service and that they should avoid whatever displeases him. Anthony Hokma uh, defined holiness. Um, so as we were reflecting on God's holiness, 
we highlighted over the last few weeks that the wholeness and we, the way we should, uh, it is described to us in the Bible, it really presented in two distinct ways. The first is his majestic holiness. And what does it mean that God is distinct from everything else? There is nothing in this creation uh, that would show us God. And any of analogies that we as people try to make, uh, especially when we deal with the subject of Trinity, trying to deal with the character and nature, how it works together, all of our analogies really come short. None of us can think and operate outside of creation, created world. All of us bound to creation as creatures. But God, uh, he is unique. John Feinberg, in his book, No One Like Him, uh, he gives them just, just a glimpse, uh, one of, the, one of he, the quotes, as the majestic God whose qualities know no boundary, God's being is infinitely above his creatures. Moreover, as distinct from creation, he does not depend on anyone or anything to bring him into existence or to sustain him in being. This is not like us. For us to exist, we need sleep. Okay, if you miss a few hours of sleep, next day you know that and everybody around you know that. Okay? That makes us not holy. From that definition, unlike God, he does not depend on sleep. He is a self-sustained, self-existent. There is nothing that he needs to exist. For another example, for those of you who have younger children or teenagers, if you don't feed them every two hours, there is a huge traffic in the kitchen. Um, unlike God, and of course, there is only one being with such majesty and perfection. He is unique, unity God. And John Feinberg puts here unity because he will deal with the subject of Trinity. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, verse 2, you may recall this is the portion of Hannah's prayer as she comes into the presence of God uh, when she pleads with God for a child. And this is her prayer. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And you may recall that Hannah in her prayer, she was reflecting on the character and nature of God. Her prayer was so influential that the young lady later on in Luke chapter 1 followed the model of this prayer, praising God. So as a point of application, dear sisters, um, you may not be teaching in front here, but I want you to know that your prayers are very influential and influence could carry on uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. So this is the first uh, aspect of God's holiness. His, his majestic uh, holiness or his majestic uniqueness. Who can say what is another characteristic of divine holiness that we have spoke about? Okay. When we think about holiness, what do we think? What is really more common to us? Lack of sin. Okay, sinlessness. Okay, lack of sin. Pure. Pure. Okay. 
Perfect? Yes. So when we think in the moral characteristics, and this is really the second aspect of divine wholeness that we uh, need to keep in mind. He's really moral purity and perfection. And again, I'm going to quote from John uh, Feinberg. God is separate from, uh, from anything in his moral purity and perfection. That's really the end of the first line. That God is separate from anything in his moral purity and his perfection. And again, when we consider that and compare ourselves, we are not there by any means of imagination. It's individually or collectively. None of us will ever be like God in this life. And it is interesting to think about uh, in 1 John chapter 3, it says that when we will see Christ, we will be like him. Uh, the restoration of our moral um, being is going to be restored. We'll be without sin. So John Feinberg writes, God is free from pollution of sin, for he cannot sin. In fact, he is so pure and perfect that the scripture says he cannot even be tempted to sin, James 1.13. Though God could have decided not to oblige himself to, and to obey any moral rules, the description of God's actions in scripture shows that he abides by the same standards he sets for us. It was very interesting as I was reading through this, uh, when we placed in the position to instruct and set standards, oftentimes we do not follow the same standards. We, we may attempt to follow, but we usually follow a lot shorter. We expect of other people to be right here when we expect of ourselves to be here. That's pretty natural for us. Not with God. When he expects us to be holy, or when he gives us commandments, he abides by them. This is part of his moral purity in his character, of his holiness. In fact, God's moral norms are expressions of his moral attributes. So in obeying those norms, God is just being consistent with who he is. In, in Psalm 89, once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It is very interesting that every single promise that we can trust that God has given to us, we, he will keep them because of his holiness. He will be very consistent to every single promise. So when we Think about God's holiness. Yes, it's absolutely terrifying for us as sinners to come one-on-one -on -one with holy God. So we do not come on our, by ourselves, we come through Christ. But on the other hand, for us as the children of God, this is absolutely comforting. Truth, it's just a reminder for us that it is he who is going to be very consistent to every single word he gave us. Why? Because he's holy. So as we think through the book of Leviticus, just really to, and I'm going to put quickly this slide because we've, sorry, too fast. Uh, we, we went through this uh, outline. There are two key truths as we think about the book of Leviticus. And I know for those of you who maybe join us for the first time, whenever you uh, commit to the annual reading of the scriptures, uh, the tendency as soon as you hit the Leviticus, you turn the fan on 
so you can quickly throw, go through the pages. And then you go back to numbers, you know, more narratives, more story. It's easier to follow. Uh, hopefully, your perspective will change. Uh, you, at least, if you turn fan, at least put on speed one. Um, but as we think about Book of Leviticus, we want to uh, learn in God's wholeness. There are two truths that we have to remember. And this is what will help us to navigate through the book. The way to God through appropriate worship. That's really the part one of the book, first 16 chapters. And now walk with God through obedient lifestyle. Now these truths, they explicitly uh, presented to us in Leviticus. But not only in Leviticus. They are truly applicable for any New Testament believer. So when we uh, study any Old Testament books, we have to remember principle uh, 10. This is not my original principle. Uh, uh, I've heard from somebody, actually from somebody who attended the church where Pastor Campus came from, but uh, 10, it helps me to remember then, eternal, now, okay? T-E-N. So as you deal with any Old Testament passages or New Testament passages, we have to think, what happened then? What is the eternal, regardless of the time? What, what truths that are eternal, either they applicable to Israel then, to the first generation church, or they applicable in the 21st century, or they will be applicable 2,000 years from now and eternity from now. Uh, so what is eternal and what is now? Okay, and then we can uh, appropriate and apply those principles. So this is exactly what we are trying to do as we study Leviticus. So the book of Leviticus was given when Israel was at Mount Sinai. They just received the instructions and they finished building the tabernacle. And uh, within a month after they finished building the tabernacle, you will come really uh, important 30 days when we next Sunday will cover a ministry of priests and especially uh, two priests who disregarded the instructions that God has given to them. It happened in a very short period of time. Um, so let us uh, read. Uh, we will read a portion of chapter 4, but uh, today we're going to cover sin offering and briefly touch on guilt offering. That will conclude five offerings that w w are described to us in the first seven chapters. So I'd ask uh, a volunteer who can read loud and clear. And you can read either from your text or you can read from the slide. Okay, I'll have a few. So let's start with Danny and then John. You'll do next. Thank you. So before we dive into chapter four, and we will really only deal, uh, kind of look at the first section of chapter four, I want you to notice just a few things. Um, if you've been reading through Leviticus with us, uh, notice that there is a grammatical shift. Uh, is the clues that the authors leave for us as readers. So chapter one started, then the Lord spoke to Moses. Chapter 4 starts in the same way. So this is a new section. Uh, new section is uh, 
sort of speak, a new chapter in this uh, book as God instructs Moses and who is going to instruct people of Israel. Speak to the sons of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally, I want you to notice a few things. First, a holy God who chose to be present among his people. There is an automatic assumption here that people of Israel will sin. But here in this section, God is going to provide instructions if sin is unintentional. What is the, another type of sin that we read in Old Testament? Intentional, okay? So if you were to read Numbers 15, I don't have it on my slides, but Numbers 15 kind of deals and, and provides the description and defines unintentional sin when somebody goes astray or acts in negligence or acts in ignorance, it is still sin, versus when somebody sins with a high hand, somebody who sins defiantly. So in this text, in chapter 4 of Leviticus, God is giving a provision for people, how they can be cleansed, restored, reconciled with him when they sin unintentionally. In Numbers 15, uh, verses 27 and 31, if if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray, That's another way to say he sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. But the person who does anything defiantly, whatever he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and and that person shall be cut off from among his people. So the punishment for defiant High-hand sin is very different than when, it, when sin is unintentional. John, if you could read this section, please. You have a question. It's Numbers chapter 15, 27, 31. us to pause and make a few observations. If you remember, we've been covering burnt, whole burnt offering, uh, grain offering, and peace offering. They were considered voluntary. They would be required for a nation of Israel to, uh, for the priest specifically, to, to present burnt offering on a daily basis. But from the individual standpoint, individual worshiper, it was a voluntary. In this case, unintentional sin offering is not option anymore. I want you to notice that um, if you were to read chapter 4, you will notice that uh, God gives a prescription uh, for the high priest or anointed priest. So it's somebody who ministers in the tabernacle or in the temple. And then he will uh, give a prescription if a whole nation sins. 
and then if uh, one of the elders or leaders of the nation sin, or if a common people will sin. But notice that he starts with the high priest, the anointed priest. Why? Why that is the focal point? Why not the president or the king? So they didn't have the king yet. They will have a king. Deuteronomy will give the prescription for the king. So king is expected to come. But I want you to notice that it is not the king who, from God's standpoint, as a theocratic nation, it is the priest who represents. Priest is the mediator. And when priest sins so as to bring guilt on all people, it's the sin of high priest. And who is guilty? All the people. I want you to see here a real principle of federal headship. Um, in the federal headship, the sin of high priest is applicable to all people. The sin of Adam is applicable to all people. The decision of the President of the United States to go to war brings all the people of the United States under the decision. So there is that principle that we see in the scriptures. And that becomes really important in Romans chapter 5. Kind of a side note, because Paul is going to compare the first Adam and second Adam. As the disobedience of first Adam brought the, the whole human race under the curse of sin, the, the obedience of the second Adam will bring the redemption, the forgiveness, and restoration to everyone who is in second Adam. So God is taking very seriously the sin of those in the leadership who represent him to people, and he is going to address them first. Um, now notice here that if it is a priest, he has to bring a bull. He has to lay his hands, and then he has to slaughter the bull, and then blood of that bull has to be applied where? It probably next verse, next section. Okay. So we'll continue with, uh, it will give us an answer where the blood is applied. Because before anybody who sins, uh, like if they would bring a burnt offering, the, the, blood, the priest will apply the blood outside at the bronze altar. But in this case, uh, he says, and the priest shall dip his fingers in the blood of the, and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrance uh, incense, before, which is before the Lord in the tent of the meeting. And all the blood of the bull shall pour out, he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway to the tent of the meeting. Just to give us a visual. So when, when priest sins, he brings the bull, he slaughters the bull, and the priest who ministers at that time, he will take the blood and go inside. It is interesting that in this text, uh, God uses the phrase before the Lord four times. So he literally has to come into the presence before the veil, into the presence of the Lord, because this veil would separate holy of holies from holy. And he would apply the blood there. And then he would put the blood on the four horns 
and the rest of the blood he's going to pour out outside uh, outside at the, at the burnt offering. Okay. Who would like to read this, this portion, these few verses? Please, Sandy. one more section. Would you be so kind to finish? Thank you. What is so unique about this specific instruction from what we have learned so far? Nothing is safe. Nothing is safe. So everything is consumed. There is no portion that is shared with either priests or the offers. Everything is consumed by fire. Okay? Yes. So actually, uh, not only the entrails, but the rest, except the kidney and the fat, everything else was taken outside of the camp. This is the first time when God is showing that a high priest commits sin where? In, in, a, in a tabernacle. And he atones for that sin, but also takes the offering outside of the camp to a clean place. And this is really where, uh, where that uh, sacrifice is consumed by fire. It is outside of the camp. Uh, when we think about death of Christ as the perfect sacrifice, where did he die? Outside of the city. He definitely died outside of the city, right? So what would be the occasion? We've briefly highlighted for the sin offering. What would be the occasion? As chapter 4 gives us a list, really, it deals specifically with unintentional sin, breaking the clear instruction, the commandment of the Lord, but it was not done willfully or defiantly. Now, there are sins that, that are committed intentionally, but um, as one of the authors said, every defiant sin is intentional, but not every intentional sin is defiant. So for us, as we think about the application and implication, so it would be applicable either to anointed priest, the whole congregation, the leader, or common person. What is the implication for us as we think about the list of people? Good question. So when the parts burn 
Yes. Yes, everything else. Yes, the, the meat, uh, everything would be burned outside. Yes. What is the implication when we look at this list? Everyone. Notice that we wish uh, the last line would not be here. Or some of, some of us may be thinking either leader uh, or a whole congregation. Everybody has to deal with sin when they consider worship and then how they bring and come up before God's presence. They have to have that purification. This is, uh, as, as uh, one of the authors says, that, that illustration for us, the more diligently and zealously uh, the priest had to live his life in the conformity to the model of holiness. And it is same, the same applicable to those who serve in the position of leadership today in the Church of Jesus Christ. Leaders uh, have a higher accountability, higher stake. They have a great influence, and God demands a higher standard from them. And that is true then, and it is true today. So just briefly, as a summary for us, elements of this sin offering for the priest, it was a bull, and, or for whole congregation, it was a bull. Uh, for a leader, it would be a male goat, and for, and for a common person, it would be a female goat, or even uh, they could bring, yeah, a female goat, a goat, a lamb. It is interesting that uh, at the end of each section in Leviticus, God says, and it will be forgiven him. This is one of the great terms that we cherish. There is a hope of restoration. I want you to think about if you can name me any religious systems that you're aware of where a person can be forgiven. Islam, for example. A very uh, zealous follower of Allah, can he be assured of his forgiveness or she? Absolutely not. This is one thing they know for sure. They have absolutely no assurance. And it is up to Allah's decision, really, at the end of the day, whether they will or will not be in paradise. But there is one truth or one religion, really, that presents to us the assurance of forgiveness. And it is in the Bible. So how can, how can that forgiveness be received? Well, in the Old Testament, they had to bring a sacrifice before the Lord. Okay, God gives this clear instruction. It's very interesting for me to see that it is God who gives instruction, who provides a provision for people. He communicated then to them and he communicated now to us even on the pages of the New Testament. When, when uh, either priest or leader or common people, when they bring a sacrifice, notice that they bring it before the Lord. Okay, because sin is committed against the Lord. They lay their hand on the head of the offering. Why? To identify with the offering. Also, why? Another reason. There is a substitute. Thank you. 
they slay the animal before the Lord. And really, uh, the blood is collected. What does it signify? Life. The life was given, so life can be spared. <clears throat> so the priest will uh, take blood, he will apply some blood inside the tabernacle, he will sprinkle seven times uh, before the veil. This is really the boundary, the closest he could come before God's holiness. Uh, he would apply some, some blood on the horns of the altar, the golden altar. He would pour the rest of the blood at the base of the bronze altar, and he would offer uh, inner part, fat and inner organs of the animal on the bronze altar, and the rest he will burn outside of the camp. As we think about this sin offering, what are some lessons for worship for us, for New Testament believers? If you have an opportunity to teach your children or grandchildren the sin offering, what would you draw the bridges for them? What truths would you carry on to them? The absence of forgiveness the Lord is given as the sacrifice. So if he would sacrifice himself and love the other people like his, and we accept Jesus as our personal Savior, and when we sin, we all ask him for forgiveness. Thank you. Thank you. What is your name? John, thank you, John. It, it, it is absolutely true. And I hope you do instruct your children. And first and foremost, that uh, it is instruction for us and for, for our children as we instruct them that every single sin is committed. It is a sin against the Lord. Anyone could open Psalm 51, verse 4. Can you recite? I mean, it seems like... and done what is evil. So David writes, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So every, every time uh, we sin, people sin, it may be interpersonal sin, but truth of the matter, every single sin is done against the Lord, first and foremost. So we see that the sin causes the relationship to be broken. Who can read Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2? I would ask somebody to open also Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 26, so we can do uh, in an active way. So anybody from this side, Romans 3, 21, 26, who is a volunteer? Okay, we'll designate Nate. Thank you. Anybody on this side? John 3.16. This is the easy one. Okay. No partiality. Just the order. Uh, Hebrews 9.22. And this side. Hebrews 7.26.28. Hebrews 7.26.28. Okay. Now, I need one more person here. Uh, so, Danny, you, you ready to read Isaiah 59? Okay, one second, one second. I need one more person here to read Psalm 32, verse 5. These are some fascinating verses that uh, we can reflect on them. Somebody over here, 
Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. John, you will read Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. Okay. Please. So Isaiah writes to people of Israel and says, the problem is not in God's ability or his strength. The problem is in your sin. That's what causes the separation and broken relationship. Okay, Romans chapter 3, 21, 26. Nate. This is a loaded verse, and we're not going to do the study of the verse, but I want you to uh, remember a key word, really, in this verse, propitiation, which means what? There is a satisfaction of divine wrath. So Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God, and anyone who receives Christ by faith, God justifies that person, and God remains just and the justifier at the same time. John 3.16. Anybody on this side? John 3.16. Anybody? And really the key truth, for God so loved the world that he gave. When it comes to the broken relationship, who initiate the restoration? It is God who, who initiates the restoration. Okay, Hebrews 9.22. Even though God initiates the restoration, the true forgiveness has to be done through the act of atonement. It has to be, blood has to be spilled. Life has to be given. Okay, Hebrews 7, 26, 28. Notice that Leviticus chapter 4, 
points forward for a need of a better, greater high priest. And it is none but Jesus. And here, the author of Hebrews says, comparing really the, the ministry of high priest in the Old Testament and uh, the new high priest, and says he didn't have to offer offering for his own sins. Why? Because there were none. Okay, Psalm 32, verse 5. Notice in the Old Testament, God required for people to bring an offering because Christ has died once for all. We receive that forgiveness on the basis of Christ's substitutionary death. However, when we come before God, we still need to come with repentance and faith. And it is interesting to see how that theology progressed in the life of David as he writes Psalms. He says, uh, I would bring thousands of offerings. That's not what you desire. You desire a broken heart and contrite spirit. Uh, it is absolutely true for us. When we deal with our own sin before holy God, we come acknowledging it. We open it. We uncover it. And it is God who by grace and because of Christ's death, he covers our sin. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. Thank you. This is a very important text. I think all the texts we read are very important. But when we deal with our personal purity and deal with our sin before God, we walk by faith. When we confess our sin, God, in a supernatural way, forgives us and cleanses our conscience. So our sin is offensive against God when it is brought to light before God. It is forgiven. We are cleansed, we are restored, we are pure before God. Now, this is not the end of all the lessons we can learn from Leviticus 4. This is just the beginning. So as you uh, go through Old Testament passages and you, you sit down and you read through them, you will, uh, you will glean from the text so many important truths. Uh, we have about five minutes, and I just want to really touch briefly on a guilt offering. So we can close this section with uh, various offerings. So guilt offering, what was the occasion? There were a number of occasions why the guilt offering, which would be very similar to sin offering, uh, when somebody sinned unintentionally in a legal matter as a witness who testified in the court, maybe he left details or didn't specify certain things or omitted, so in a judicial matter. Uh, second, when somebody touches something that is unclean, and what is unclean? We will see in Leviticus 11 through 15. When somebody gives a thoughtless promise, and I know none of us deal with people who give thoughtless promises today, but then in Israel in the ancient, and this is old truth, yeah? Um, God required, God first of all held people accountable. They would be guilty 
And they had to uh, come forward and restore things through sacrifice and other means. Or if somebody illegally withheld another person's property, if it was maybe given to them as a stewardship or, you know, somebody traveling a long distance and they wanted, you understand that at that time they did not have credit cards, bank accounts, and cryptocurrencies. Um, everything was gold or silver or any other means. So if I uh, was delegated and given in tr as a trust, I have to return full possession. So if a person would either steal or mishandled there is a consequence. First, they're guilty. And second, they need to come about and bring the restoration. So one of the uh, processes of this restoration, they have to confess their sin. They had to bring the guilt offering to the Lord. And they also had to, in some instances, provide a restitution. Uh, add one fifth or 20% of what was entrusted to them. As we close, I'd like somebody to read Isaiah 53, verse 10. Nate, Isaiah 53, verse 10. You have a very quick finder Bible. Uh, 53, 10. Who can tell what Isaiah 53 is about? Christ. Christ. Okay, let's, let's hear If you happen to deal with guilt in your life, there was a guilt offering offered once and for all. And you can cling to Christ, who is that perfect guilt offering and who restores us and allows the restoration to be restored. Any questions? We have about two minutes and I, I would like uh, in the closing, open up the time for you. If you would like to have to pray and praise God in a one sentence prayer. I know it's going to be a brief, but hopefully a number of you can use this opportunity to give thanks based on what we've learned. So Derek, I would like you to start and then I will close. And then after Derek, anyone of you who would like to pray and give thanks to the Lord, uh, if you want to come to Christ, this is a perfect opportunity to come and be restored, be reconciled with God. Uh, this is an opportunity to come to this great high priest who is a perfect sacrifice. Please. Thank you, Lord Jesus, so much that you made a way for us to come to you, God. You see our hearts, desire, humble, contrite hearts. That tremble at your word, not just that spirit trembles at your word. Take the strong Lord Jesus, humble and afraid.
after each of these offerings was given there at the fort to return and then sent each of them and thank you Miss Rachel for being there. Father God we're grateful for the truth of your word we're grateful that the Spirit of God inspired these words and providentially through the centuries made sure that we would have an opportunity to read your instructions how we as sinners could come into the presence of the holy, majestic, unique, absolutely glorious God. We do not feel the right to come before you and understanding our sin and our shame, we naturally flee and hide. But we're grateful that you have made the way, you have provided the best, the most sufficient sacrifice in your own son, whom you did not spare, but you gave him, and in him you have adopted us. And you offer that gift of forgiveness and restoration by faith. Or there is nothing we need to do but to come with empty hands and receive your gift of forgiveness, your gift of restoration, and walk by faith in the purity of hearts. We thank you that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is active today to continue to expose sin in our lives and to draw us closer to Christ, that we would confess our sin, that we would receive cleansing and forgiveness. I pray that you give us grace as we walk in Christ, uh, fill our hearts with great joy and gratitude to you. We ask these things for your glorious name. Amen. <laughs>